We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. And welcome back to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we are back with our extended coverage of this week's film, Ghost in the Shell, with a Spy Master interview. Cam, who are we talking to this week? We are talking to Mary Claypool, whose job it was to translate the original text of Ghost in the Shell for English language audiences. Yeah, we... we um. It's it's not a role we've dealt with before. We've spoken to directors, screenwriters, cinematographers, composers on our Spymaster interview series. But it's the first time we've had a job this specific, but also this pivotal. Um, but we will learn more about her role in the film in the interview. She takes a lot of time to spell out what she does in the production. But um, a very important piece of the puzzle when it comes to bringing a Japanese film or a film in a non-English language to English-speaking countries. Yeah, and if you've enjoyed some of our past interviews with screenwriters, this is in some ways right along with those interviews in terms of the content, but from an angle that we've never explored before, and it is genuinely fascinating. There's also some uh, Star Trek, Batman, Ghostbusters connections in this interview. So, uh, yeah, I think without further ado, Cam, roll it. Rollin'. And joining us now on the show, the creator of the English localization for this week's film, Ghost in the Shell, it is Mary Claypool. How are you doing, Mary? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the show. It's um, it's an interesting one because when we do these interviews, where we like to sort of try and contextualize the film. We speak to the people behind the screen, behind the lens that made it, actors when we can as well. Um, and it's to try and give it a different view because it's well and good me and Cam talking about it. And we've got a great guest on this week to talk about the film. But to have someone who actually worked on putting out the actual film in 1995, I think is a very important thing because it can really teach you a lot about how this film was put together. And um, I mean, I'm quite fascinated to know about how you worked with Ghost in the Shell. But I think before we do that, let's take it back a little bit and just learn a little bit more about you. So my first question is, is how did you get into <laughs> doing the localization work and working with these sort of ADR scripts? Well, that is a bit of a story. Um, I have always wanted to be a writer. So when I went to college and university, I studied journalism and English. I had high ambitions to write and possibly even teach on a college level. So when I went to uh, the University of Cal State Northridge, I immediately started taking journalism, English, and radio TV film, as it was called then. And then I started dating a fellow who was in visual effects. 
And he said, you know, they're hiring for a place called Boss Film and you might enjoy it. So all of a sudden I changed course and I went to go work for Boss Film and I started working on Ghostbusters, <laughs> my first movie. And I became a production coordinator for a visual effects house. So this is a long story and it takes a long arc. So I began a career in visual effects as a coordinator and I worked on all these movies from 2001, the space, or 2010, the space odyssey, Ghostbusters, Big Trouble in Little China, all these iconic films. And they were great fun, but um, I wanted to do something more. And I bounced around freelancing to visual effects and makeup effects. I worked for Rick Baker on Gremlins 2 oh, wow. and all these fun things. But I had a wonderful opportunity on Gremlins 2 to sit in on all the meetings with the director, Joe Dante, and the producer and staff. And when they had some trouble writing some of the scenes, I kind of elbowed Rick and said, can I put in my two cents? He said, go right ahead. And I gave Joe Dante my take on a couple of scenes and he said, write them up. And I did, I scripted them and they shot them. And they're exactly as they appeared in the movie. I couldn't take credit for it because I wasn't a union writer, but I really got that taste for writing. So after continuing just, to work- Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I'm just curious if you could just highlight like which scenes are oh. they? <laughs> in the scene Gremlins 2, there's the scene of Marge in the kitchen and all the chaos that ensues from the Gremlins they could not figure out how to make the gremlin puppets play in a way that would be easy for the puppeteers to manipulate yet carry the story forward and the writer who was there was kind of busy on the phone talking to someone else and didn't seem really present and i'm a big cook i love to cook i know all about every kitchen implement known to man and i suggested well why don't you use a turkey baster why don't you use this why don't you do that and it had to push the, the story forward from there to become a bigger scene where the water comes out. Uh, they, want, they wanted something. I said, well, throw all the stuff into the microwave, turn it on, cause an explosion, make the sprinklers overhead, create a big water fiasco that will then cause more of the little gremlins to grow because that's part of their thing. And then at the very end, they did not know how to kill the big spider gremlin. I said, well, let's make Gizmo that hero. And how to, how to uh, make him kill the gremlin was all my idea. So they killed the gremlin, uh, the spider gremlin, which was way too fast. They had only one spider gremlin and he burned up so fast. They didn't have a time for a second take. <laughs> That's it. He's dead. He's gone. So that was fun. I got to write that. And... Um, I was just really feeling that need to write. But in the meantime, I was also feeling the need to have a baby. <laughs> and I had met my now husband. And uh, you can't work crazy hours and be a mom and do all this. He goes, well, come work at my dubbing studio, Magnitude 8. And uh, you could help me run the studio. And there's also a stage there. You could help run that. And your hours might be a little more normal. And it was at Magnitude 8 where it was a premier dubbing studio for all these iconic films and uh, TV anime shows that I met Kevin Seymour, who was a director and he was also instrumental in bringing a lot of manga to America. He made it very mainstream. And I overheard him one day complaining that he couldn't find any good writers. Well, all of a sudden I was right at his shoulder and said, me, me, me. 
And he gave me a chance on a show called Giant Robo. And that was wild. He liked my work. And it's funny, he didn't particularly like me. We did not hit it off. But every <laughs> time I wrote something for him, he started to like it a little bit more. And we got to talking a little bit more and found out we shared a great deal in common, like science fiction writers and and pop culture. And pretty soon we're like, I love you, man. We'd sit there and drink like, man, you're my best friend. He became my mentor and taught me everything I know. He passed away in 2014, so I owe him everything. But it was only a year after I became an ADR writer, writing on all the projects that came through the studio, that <laughs> I was approached by the Japanese producer who brought in a lot of projects. He, he spoke in very limited sentences, very short sentences, and usually three words. His name was Ken Iadomi, lovely man. And he walked up to me one day, he goes, Mary, how are you? I said, I'm fine, Kent, how are you? Good. You go to Japan, right? Uh, he just said, you go to Japan. I said, I'd love to go to Japan someday. You go in two weeks, you have passport? I didn't know what he was talking about. He goes, I have Kevin explain. He leaves the room. Kevin walks up, he goes, Mary, we have decided that we want you to go to Japan, to Tokyo, to meet the creator of Ghost in the Shell, Mamoru Oshii, to discuss it and then come back and write the script. I just looked at him and I said, what's a ghost in the shell? I'd never heard of it, <laughs> never right. heard of it. And he goes, you don't know. And he gave me that look that we have much, much to learn, Padawan. So uh, I, I don't think if I would have gone had I not had a valid passport, there, <laughs> but I, I went and I got prepped on Ghost in the Shell and I was literally handed back in the day when you could do this, a letterbox full of the manga. I said, read this on the way to Japan. What is it? It's all the comic books, not comic books, manga. So I read all of it before I got to Japan to meet Mamoru Oshii. And that's where we had meetings to discuss the project. And uh, that's how I got into the writing. And that's how I became the writer of this particular animated feature. Okay. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll try it. I mean, I, I actually want to get back to some of your early VFX work. I think sure. maybe once we've spoken about the film, maybe we'll, we'll wind that road back there. But I, I kind of want to focus on the film this week. So, so you're off to Japan. Yes big moment in your life pivotal moment i i would imagine because it's, it's led you here and of course this is you know the pinnacle, the height, uh, the pinnacle. yeah you've you've, <laughs> you've made it now um well I, I i would assume then that you can read and write japanese no i can speak a little japanese i cannot write any of it i am provided a translation the adr writers are given a translation of whatever uh, from the language, from whatever uh, it originated. So I write, um, I will write English dialogue, dubbing for the dubbing uh, mm -hmm. from whatever language it comes from, whether it's French or Portuguese or Spanish. I work for other shows besides anime. I've, I've worked for Netflix and HBO and Disney on their products. Uh, it just so happens that um, most of my work was in the realm of anime. And it came from Japan because that was what the studio primarily did. They were just a huge conduit for it. Well, it seems to me like there would be a lot, especially with Ghost in the Shell, like a lot of information you need to get across. 
So like, where does the process of adaptation begin? Like when you're first like, okay, here's the project. I have to sit down and start. What are kind of the steps you're going through? Uh, first thing you do when you're handed something like Ghost and Shell is go into a fetal position with alcohol <laughs> because I, it was it was crazy. I, as I said, um, up until then, I'd primarily done episodic shows. I had done one feature called Wings of Oniamis, which was rather seminal. But I got to co-write that with Kevin. So it was like he was holding my hand. This was out of left field. And I told them, I don't feel up to the task. I mean, I'm only a newbie in this business. And there were other people who'd been doing it much longer. But they liked the way I approached a project. Whenever I had a project, I would watch it all the way through. And I like, I'm a big research person. I will go to the manga. I will go to chat rooms. I will go online. I will do whatever I can to try to find out more about what it really is. This was such a rushed project. It was, let's do it, do it now. Literally from the time I was told about it, two weeks later, I'm on a plane. That doesn't give me a lot of time. Plus I was working on other projects. So I had to quickly finish that, prepare what I could and really most of everything I learned was on the plane looking through the manga. For 10 hours, all I did was read that manga and I felt like I knew everything that um, uh, Shiro Masamune was the creator of the manga. Uh, everything there was to know about it, I garnered from the manga and I had seen some of the film. The film was not done. It was still being created. Hmm. So I only had a rough VHS, remember VHS? <laughs> yeah. Watching some of that. And that was all the prep I had. And I still didn't understand a lot of it. It's a very complex film. It has a lot of layers and it's, it's, it is a lot to put into it. And even going back and watching it and rewatching it, I have to pick up bits and pieces from manga that fill in some of the gaps that are not in the film. Yeah, it's, it's one thing our, our guest this week, uh, who was quite sort of an anime and manga prefer, like, expert, and they spend a lot of time studying it, uh, said that like really to understand this film, you have to sort of read some of it or like go and watch Standalone Complex or something like that just to really get a feel for what they're trying to say here. But overall, I think the film does a good job of, of sharing its message. So, okay, you're, you're in Japan now at this point, and you, you, you've got a, a grasp of the content of the film what do they get you to do next? Did you just start writing at this point? Uh, I was taken every day for a week to Mamoru Oshii's office. We are going to sit down and we are going to go through every single page in the script and every scene in the movie that we can visualize, that can look at, going by drawings, going by the script, going by whatever we can, because he wants to make sure it's a faithful adaptation. A lot of times in in some of the dub scripts, there are companies that kind of take free license and will take a character or a plot in a different direction. That was not going to happen. He was adamant that his work would be handled and faithfully handled. So, okay, so we go there. And Kenny Adomi, who I mentioned was there. There was also Lawrence Guinness, who was a producer for the company Manga in England. He came, uh, we all flew out there together, and we were there with Oshi, a few of his people, and an interpreter. So it was in very interesting because Oshi-san is very stoic. He has one expression 
and he doesn't smile. He doesn't frown. He never spoke to me. He always spoke through either Kenny Adomi, the producer, or his interpreter. So we went through every single line in the translation to clarify, to get my input. And we had a few arguments <laughs> about some things. In the movie, you know, there's a lot of weaponry and there is a lot of gun work. And some of the words and names that they had for the guns, I argued with him. I said, those are not probably going to be well received by an American or English speaking audience. They're awkward. You don't know what they are. Maybe we could change them. And I remember him snapping at me um, through the interpreter. It, I could tell it was a brusque reply. And the interpreter looked a little nervous and he goes, Mr. Uh, Oshisan would like to know what you know about guns. I said, well, I, I own several guns because I'm a target shooter. I am. And uh, I said, I, I got a 22, I got a shotgun, I got a Smith and Wesson. And then I said, I have a, a, a 357 Magnum. And all of a sudden, Oshi responds, a dirty hairy gun? <laughs> I said, yes, dirty hairy gun. And from that moment on, I seemed to have a little more respect because I, I knew a little bit about weaponry. I thought that was amusing. So we continued on. We had our discussions about everything. There's a lot of cute stories that came up from those meetings. So I, I, I suppose what I'm trying to do, and, and hopefully for the listeners too, is, is try to get a grip of how the process works mm. of creating this. Because like, yeah. I, can see, I can see them giving you uh, a, a, a direct translation of the Japanese script. And if it's like that boat is red, and then that's, that's, you get that in English, but that's like, the words are the way around because the verbs and stuff are different. And then you have to make sense of that sentence and then yeah. contextualize it in that page and that chapter of the script, basically. No, that's a great point to bring up because an ADR writers, ADR meaning automated dialogue replacement. Um, I need to go by a translation and my work is made easier by an outstanding translation. And I have worked with some of the best translators on the planet. They not only can translate it, they know how to idiomize it so that the essence in one language that doesn't come across literally is, is basically portrayed in, in a lot of words and a lot of phrases in some languages like Japanese are almost poetic or metaphorical mm -hmm. and a good translator knows how to translate that into something I understand and can then write to an audience that will, will understand it, which is localization. In Ghost in the Shell, I got to say it was the worst translation I've ever seen in my mm. life. It was extremely literal. I was handed 17 pages of single lines single spaced lines of very dry translation. And it didn't have any of the nuance or understanding that I would typically get from one of the other translators I worked with. So I realized this is going to be difficult because I take that translation and then I would watch the movie. And I, what I need to do is try to compare that with the action that I'm seeing. And if it doesn't quite mesh up, I have to watch more of it. Sometimes I have to research that scene to find out what's really going on. And that gets to be time consuming and difficult. And there wasn't a lot of time in this particular one. I had two weeks when I came back from Japan, I had two weeks to write this feature length script. 
At the time, they would normally give me four to six weeks. This was two weeks. So that was difficult. And I had to piece together as best I could the meaning of the translation, the action, and all of the information that I garnered from Oshi and his immediate team. So I would, ha- I would have to imagine you just have copious notes you're working with as well from your, you know, obviously dialogue with the director. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And typically when you're doing ADR writing, as you write, sometimes uh, it usually goes through rewrites and you're obligated to do so many rewrites. There was not so much a luxury for this because there wasn't time for it. When things go to Japan, there was a lot of time. It wasn't as instantaneous as it is now. It would go to Japan and it's usually not addressed by just one person. It's usually by committee. So we didn't have time for it to go there, look at, come back. There were a few things that were addressed on the fly through the Japanese uh, producer who could make a phone call. But yeah, I had to incorporate my notes, what Oshi was hoping to get, what I saw, the translation, and just cross my fingers that this was going to (laughs) work. So um, I was, it was like a 24-7 gig. It was crazy. I thought I was going to die. But I, I think I did a pretty manageable job. Plus, I had to really suss out the meaning from the translation and try to make it, like I said, idiomatic and localized for the audience. So there were a lot of things in there that what, what I call padding. Let's say a character is talking and talking and talking, and he's talking for 30 seconds, and there are literally 10 words of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yes, I like the color of that dress, but he's talking. So I have to pad that. I have to make it fit in the character's mouth, and I have to make it sound natural, not like it's a stiff conversation. And I go back and I look and I thought, gee, I wish I could have tightened up that sink, but I did the best I could. Plus what I write is technical. I don't just write the words. There have to be little um, uh, symbols. There's like, uh, there might be a hashtag mark, there a pound sign, dot, dot, dot. Everything I write is either underscored, italicized, written in a way that the actor will look at it and be able to decipher those hieroglyphics. Okay, she wants an emphasis here. There's a pause here. There's a micro pause here. There's a quick stutter, a stutter, a stammer. So it's a process. I take the translation, I write it, I technically notate it. It has to be read by the actors who hopefully understand the uniformity of the notations, and then they have to act and under direction. It's quite the process. And we put a lot into it. It's a hard job. <laughs> so that's uh, that's how we do it. Did it? I, I wow. I, it it sounds like not only was there a ton of pressure by the sounds of it on this particular film. <laughs> there's a short turnaround window, but also just the pressure of the job itself because a lot of it sort of it's it, it it sounds like kind of like a relay race. It they is. write the film, and then there's a translator, and then you do your magic. Like it, it's a, or it, that's how films are made. It's a, it's a team effort. That completely makes sense. You're absolutely what, right. Yes. One question I had about you in 1994, I would imagine at this point, maybe very early 95. Um, were you aware of what the film was being pitched as? Because they wanted it to be this kind of breakthrough 
they were going to try and pitch it in America. It was going to have this wider release that, you know, Japanese films it hadn't really had. Acura was kind of the closest they had a few years before. Um, were you aware of that sort of prestige they were putting behind it? Or was it really just at, at this point kind of like a, a, a gig? I was completely clueless. My husband, who owned the studio, had never heard of it either. We had so many jobs, so many projects flooding through the studio. It was like, just stick it, put it on my desk. I'll look at it later and let's see what we got. And it was just one thing after another. And when this job came, we knew from everyone telling me that I have to go to Japan, that it must be a, a very you know prestigious job, but I knew nothing about it. I just thought that it would was a big hit among the anime community. And I did not know its impact. I wasn't even that familiar with it. We had done some other projects that Oshi had done. He had done Pat Labor and some of his work. And I was aware of it, but I didn't even know the scope of his impact as an animation director. So no, we were just like, la, la, la. But we, we tackled that job the same we tackled, in, the way we did any of our jobs. We were very, very faithful and respectful of the product. So it didn't matter if you were bringing in a small project or this, but no, we were clueless about Ghost. Hmm. And it has a very complex plot and it's about 81 minutes long. I would just like to hear you talk about getting across a fairly complex plot in rapid fire dialogue in 80 minutes, which you know a two and a half hour movie would sometimes struggle to get it across this sort of information. Oh, it was crazy. And, and there is. It's very complex. And there's tons of talking, lots and lots of exposition, talk, talk, talk. Um, I did have to go through it all. And I had to have, again, yeah, going to Japan was so useful. And then as soon as I got back, it was like the starter pistol went off, start working. And I would just take it scene by scene. I'm not the kind of writer who likes to skip ahead when I have something because that can also backfire on you. In ADR writing, an area that might not fit very well in this scene might fit better in this scene. So you have to kind of move things around. So I like to go in very consecutive chronological order. And Fortunately, one of the more complex scenes in the movie is toward the end, where if you're familiar with the puppet master, I mean, there's, mm -hmm. uh, there's sabotage, there's espionage, there's like CIA type of um, uh, duplicity going on. It's so many layers and so many levels. And under at the core of it, there is this creature, a sentient being called the puppet master. I don't know if I'm, it's a spoiler, but the puppet master is at first thought to be a hacker. Ultimately, we find out he's not a hacker. He is a secret weapon that's been devised by one of the other departments. There's section nine and there's section six. The hero, the heroine of this story is Major Motoko Kusanagi. She is a cyborg. And the whole thing of Ghost in the Shell is that the ghost refers to your, your essence, your psyche, your soul, whatever you want to consider it. It's what makes you you, your humanness. But everyone in the, this world, it's 2029, has a cyborg body. I'm waiting for mine. I've already signed up for it. <laughs> and most people have something cybernetic about them, some enhancement. She's pretty much 100% cyborg except for her psyche. So she's dealing with this angst, 
ridden problem. She has an existentialist crisis. Who am I? What am I? Am I a human? Am I not? And while she's dealing with that, she's leading this anti-crime, anti-terrorist group. And they're working in conjunction with another group called Section 6 that's actually secretly working on another thing called the Project, I think it's 2501, the Puppet Master. So the Puppet Master gets away and gets loose because he becomes sentient. So now we have something that has evolved its own sense of being and uh, there's where the plot goes. Okay, so we have that, we have her, we have all this other layering of espionage and and uh, double crossing going on and tons of action in a world that's in the future. So I had to keep all of that straight. <laughs> and then we get to a very important part in the movie toward the end where the puppet master ultimately wants to meld with Major Kusanagi to create yet a new life form. And this has got all kinds of bi uh, biology in it. So fortunately, I ace 10th grade biology. And I remembered everything that my teacher taught me about biology, evolution and genesis and, and genus and species. And I took all that and I put it into that scene, which I think really worked. What's funny is that my biology teacher, his name was Mr. Anderson. And we all know how the matrix was influenced by this movie. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I had to draw from so many sources from my education and i think i had a pretty good background in a lot of different things that helped me enrich this because i think it would have been very very difficult for someone who didn't read a lot i read a lot i learn a lot and i know a lot but um it was it was a hard show it still boggles my mind that i even got through it well, it just goes to show the uh, standard of your work, I would say, because we're still talking about it, was it 27 years later? I know, right? I'm older than I, I actually, I went to go see it. It played in theatres here in the UK last year. I actually got to see it on a big screen for the first time. Oh, nice. Um, that was quite amazing. I'm glad I had the opportunity to see that. Now, my next question is more to do with the process. You, you're back now. You, the script is written. You're handing it over to the voice actors, the English dubbed voice actors are you with them during that process is there still rewrites going on at that stage or have you handed it over well yeah once i complete it i handed it over to the director and in i was very fortunate because kevin seymour was also acting as my editor and he was bugging me non-stop are you done are you done are you done and mind you i was working with an old vhs copy i remember one of the uh, American producers on our end said, here's your tape. When I went to go work with material, I had a big commercial deck and I would toggle through frame by frame. We didn't have movie time and all this fancy schmancy software we have now. And I had a monitor and he handed me this VHS tape and it was dirty. It's like, where did you get this? Oh, it was in the garage. And he had just read he dubbed over the movie and he recopied it. So I had this really, really bad grainy copy of the movie. And you, I could not see most of the mouth movement in the dark scenes, but I had to make do. Plus the movie wasn't done. So there were long empty slugs 
that would be filled in later once they had it. They wanted to show it at the same time in Japan simultaneously. So they were still animating it. I was working with incomplete material. So finally, I write it, and I want to make one little segue here. There's a golden thing for ADR writers where the characters are talking off camera or you don't see their mouths. Their heads might be toward camera. That's great because you don't have to worry about lip sync. You can kind of run wild, have a little free license with the creativity. So there was a nice big portion of that that I wrote that I was very happy with. And finally, I gave it to Kevin. He formatted it. He gave the actors their sides and they began dubbing. And it's like, whew. And every once in a while, when they're in dubbing, they'll come out and say, we have to rewrite something. It doesn't quite work. The actor can't say it. Some actors can talk fast. Some can't talk. Um, they talk slowly or they want something else. There's a change. And I remember Kevin running into my office in a panic. Mary, why didn't you write the dialogue for this one whole scene? What are you talking about? Come with me, grabs me. We run into the room. There is a scene in the movie where a garbage man, his mind has been hacked by the puppet master. He is in a room that is like an interrogation room in the police station. You have that two-way mirror or window uh -huh. and he's talking and I just see his head and I thought, oh, good. I can just write all this lengthy dialogue. The copy, the VHS copy I had was so poor and generational loss. We couldn't see that there was a reflection in the window of him talking with his mouth moving. I had only seen the back of his head. So this entire sequence needs to be written to sync. So, okay, no problem, no pressure. Let the actor go, have a break. And in 30 minutes, I had to rewrite that entire scene to sync. And I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> I had to take it back out and rewrite it. So that was, that was fun. But normally I wasn't, uh, wasn't really part of the dubbing process. Sometimes I could go in and sit, but I had other things I had to do. I had a couple other questions just about adapting the material. I guess the first one is the characters' voices. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're adapting this material, how are you maintaining, you know, what would be very specific voices they had in the original language? I love that question because I was very lucky to know the actors who would be coming in. I had already been writing for them on several shows and every actor is different, not just the quality and sound of their voices, but some are older actors, some are younger actors, some are speed talkers. And some actors, I don't like that. I don't like that. I would like that. And I know what they wanted. And I would write specifically for those actors. Some of them like to be angry and shout. One of our actors had false teeth. And if you gave him something that was too fast, his teeth would come loose. So I was like, okay, we won't give Hal anything fast to say. <laughs> he uses cheap, den cheap dentured cream or whatever. And some of the actors like to talk fast. Some of them like to, uh, I remember a few of the women like to speak really loud and lustily. So I would just take that individual character into mind when I wrote their dialogue. 
And uh, I remember a lot of the actors did appreciate that. And it, that isn't a luxury you often get because actors come and go and writers come and go. But once you have that rhythm, it's really nice. Then everyone is working more as a single unit. It's such an interesting job because you really are balancing the creative with the technical. And yeah. Yeah. And I had another question just about when you're translating it to, you know, English speaking lang uh, languages, you know, territories, um, there are going to be cultural differences. They're going to be lost from the original text. And I'm just fascinated to know, like, what were some of the challenging, you know, concepts or ideas you had to try to translate for the, uh, you know, a different audience? Well, in this, it didn't seem quite so difficult. Uh, didn't seem quite so difficult because it is the future, and I really I loved Motoko because she was such a strong female woman, uh, female woman, female character, a hero, and honestly, my number one favorite film of all time is Aliens. The second one is Alien. I love Ripley. She to me is like the ultimate hero, man or woman, and I just kept hearkening to her because I thought she's going to be a strong woman no matter what culture, no matter who she is or where she is. And that's who she is. And in this particular future, I don't think culture really mattered because she's a cyborg. We don't even know for sure if she was a woman, you know, she was in this body and the cultural nuances, as I say in the translation, were not evident. So I just basically followed everything visually and put it in, into the dialogue. But I have worked on other shows for other countries that have a lot of nuance that can be lost. And it's very difficult to make sure that's maintained. Um, and sometimes a lot of it does get lost because the director or the producer will want it to be geared and addressed just for that demographic. And it's sad because sometimes some of the richness comes from the culture from which it originates. Hmm. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but. <laughs> no, it does. Yeah. No, that's fascinating to hear. I, I just find this, uh, this story to be absolutely well, fascinating is the right word, Cam, because it just <laughs> seems like this film that we're talking about is, is seminal in not just Japanese animation, but in film history. I mean, as we mentioned, we alluded to the Matrix films. Yes. Riff off of this film to no end. The Wachowskis have pointed out that this is true. This is not like a online theory. They they showed this film to the people making the Matrix. They they did they enjoy it. Yeah. Yes. Um. And but but the English dub was a pivotal thing because it was to it was allowed that to be introduced to american and you know english-speaking audiences i should say not just american and that's and that just fell onto your desk the last second two-week job and you <laughs> like it, it, and you were doing other things at the same time it's that that's this is what i love about cinema like you pulled it off and I, just i <laughs> yeah just mind blown and when, back in the day, we don't have this luxury so much anymore because deadlines seem to be shrinking and so do like the pay rates. I won't go there. But when I would work on a 30 minute episode, which translated roughly into 22 to 24 minutes, we were given 10 days. Power Rangers was a big show that uh, Saban, you know, you have 10 days, 15 days, and you have rewrites in that time. So I'm suddenly handed this huge project that's a feature to do in 10 days 
So here's your two weeks, go, run with it, go girl, go. Now I look back, it's like, were they asking me because they had faith in me or I was the only sucker who wouldn't back down from the job? No, no, I'd like to think they they wanted me. But um, yeah, it was was crazy. And there were so, that's why my husband and I do like a two hour panel at conventions on just the show. There is so much to talk about it because after it's dubbed, Actors come in sometimes and they don't even know what they're reading for. They just come in, what character am I doing? They just jump into the character and they hit their marks and they have, if they have a good script that they can read technically and they can act through the technicalities, then they hit it. And um, in this case, Kevin Seymour was trying to prep them and make them understand the importance of their roles. And uh, which they did, but some just came in. What am I doing? What am I reading? Here's your character. And then they leave. Then they never come back. We, on the other hand, at the studio, stay weeks, if not months after the fact, doing the editing, doing rewrites, doing pickups, doing whatever is needed. So we're much more invested in it. And it lingers in our laps for a long time. And do you get much feedback on your work once it's completed? No, um, it, it depends. It depends on the project. I did on Ghost because of what it was. But yeah. other things, you know, it was, nowadays it seems like it's just a dubbing mill. Get it in, get it out, get it in, get it out. And honestly, I'm going to say here that I don't feel that writers get the respect and the credit that they're due now. And mm-hmm. certainly not the pay that they should. And while the actors do an incredible job, they're like, oh, the actors, the actors, the actors. Well, think of the original product. Someone came up with that story. And it's often a fabulous story. That's why it's popular. Then it has to go to the dubbing. A lot of people hate dubs because they don't like the way it's either disrespecting the original or they don't like the mechanics or maybe they just don't like the way the characters are portrayed by the voices. So once it's done properly. We like to think back in the day that we were such a team because we respected everything. We really got into it. Kevin was an aficionado of anime and everyone who came into the studio got on board with that mindset and realized we're gonna do this, we're gonna do it to the best of our ability. And they, they really did. It was great and in, the, in the movie. Everyone did a fine job. And in the series that followed and the sequels, they had the same actors and they just really owned their roles. They loved it and they were great. And uh, to this day, they like Richard Epcar who played Bateau, he's still playing Bateau. The guy is gonna be Bateau to the bitter end. <laughs> he's great. Uh, and you, um, you know, did Ghost in the Shell too, which uh, Oshi also directed. Did you continue to have a similar form of collaboration on that one? Or was it like, were you meeting with him again to get all these notes and to go through? Or was it a different process at that point? That was a different process because uh, after I did not have to go to Japan, did not have to, I wish I could have. Mm. I did Innocence. Innocence was actually dubbed a couple of times. Richard Epcar wrote it. He's a writer actor. And then they had me do it. And I thought, why are they asking me to do it when it's already been dubbed? And uh, to be clear on that, it's because different licensee holders purchase it and they want their own dub. It has nothing to do, Richard's version was excellent, but mine was too, you know, it was just a slightly different take. I don't know why they do that, but they do. 
But from then on, I think the trust was there. That was a big thing with the Japanese clients and all of the creatives, because once they had trust, go ahead, we trust you. Oh my God, that was huge. They just let us do whatever we wanted because they knew we would do it right. Mm-hmm. I, I now just can't, I'm picturing the concept of having two different dubs and then like both of them say the same thing in the scene, but different ways yeah. and how you construct that. That's, that's mind blowing. I'll, I'll, maybe we'll come back to that. But the question I had next for you about Ghost in the Shell, sort of a double question. The first half is looking back on your work on the film, your your dub of the film. What is the scene that you are most proud of that you put together? Oh my gosh, um, the scene that I really love that uh, is the one I think I mentioned about having the biology. It's toward the end where the puppet master is speaking through another person or a cyborg to Motoro. Mm-hmm. And he's discussing why he wants to merge with her. And he's discussing basically the essence of life and evolution and the need to create a new entity. I was very proud of that dialogue. And I've got to say the puppet master's voice by Tom Weiner, he hit that nail on the head that buttery voice, beautiful delivery. It was excellent. I felt very proud of that. And then we go into the big scene from that moment. Oh, it was, it was um, right before that moment, she is fighting, uh, trying to open the hatch on the big spider tank. And then it goes into this dialogue and it, he discusses the tree of life and the evolution. And that is my favorite scene. I love that scene. It, uh, it was beautifully, done it was eloquently delivered by tom and uh i thought that that's some of my best work it, it's one of my probably my two one of my two favorite scenes in the film so i no doubt of that good choice what was your other? um the other one is when early on in the film with the major and the rookie on the team i've forgotten the name of oh, and he's that- asked yes he's asking why he was brought on team and she does the speech about it's a slow death and I, I just like that. Like you, you, you shouldn't over specialize. It's it's a correct it's it's a correct way of doing. It. You should have different specialities in a team. And, yes. uh, yeah, and it, it, it's human. Yeah, they don't yeah. want that predictability, and they want to keep things mixed up a bit. Which is, is like a theme that plays throughout the film, in a sense, because it's like it's meant to be synergy. It's it's yes. different things coming together to create a new being, which is how it works with the puppet master. But it works the same thing with the team. Exactly, it's a great scene too. I love that. Yeah. It's great. Well, good work on both. Um, the follow-up to that question is, what is the scene you probably had the biggest challenge with? Oh, um, I think that would be the scene on the boat where she is speaking with Bateau and she's talking about who and what she is. There was just so much dialogue there. Mm-hmm. And I wanted it to sound not dry and boring, and there wasn't a lot of translation. So I really had to build on what was there and and it was going on. And I remember just kind of screaming at the top of my lungs, stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) I I had an office that I left the door open and I, whenever I did the dialogue, 
I would say it because I need to know how I say it out loud in the way I think the actor will say it so that I can get a feel for it. So people are hearing me scream or talk or cry or boo, 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 and they're like, is she all right? No, no, she's ready. Just leave her alone. Don't, don't go there. <laughs> but that was a very, very hard scene for the amount of dialogue and to make it sound relatively fluid and uh, normal, I guess you'd say. Now, you talked about how you who how you've um, dubbed you know projects from all over the world. Mm-hmm. I'm just really interested as someone who's worked in anime for so long. What is it about you know Japanese anime that makes it so special and so unique as a storytelling approach? Oh, boy, we talk about this a lot. In fact, we were talking about it earlier today with a coworker. Um, the anime is just not like any other animation. I did not know that as I never heard of anime before I started working at that term. But as a child, I this is I'm going to date myself. I used to love I rush home to watch Astro Boy and Kim of the White Lion and Speed Racer. I love those. And it was so different. It wasn't Disney. It wasn't Looney Tunes. And it wasn't the same. It didn't look the same. The plots weren't the same. There was a darker element to it. And with anime, um, with anime, there's a lot more to it. The, these are almost like real people who just happen to be animated. They're feeling deeper things. They're doing things. And it's funny, I'm going to segue a little bit, but there's actually a huge connectivity between anime and many of the people who are anime fans, some of whom are on the spectrum. And I speak with many of them. Many of them are fans and even become friends. Some of them have told me, have come to me when at an autograph table. They said, your character saved my life. I said, what do you mean? I said, I was going to kill myself because I had been bullied. No one, I had no friends, no social life, but your character saved me. Said, you mean the character in this anime? So, well, I didn't create that character. That was created by the Japanese, but your words are what I heard. And I realized that the characters in anime are flawed, but they rise to heroic levels and they ultimately do things that any of us can do. They just pull it deep from within them. And I see that a lot of these people connect to it because I can do that. I can be that. I can find something in me that nobody else saw and screw everybody else. I'm going to be this person, this character. And I think that that resonates with the anime community because you can also be, you can be silly characters. You can be heroic characters. You can be fantastical mythical characters, but they're not perfect. And there's not often a happy ending. They are living this uh, unusual life that is very often deeply flawed and damaged. And I think they, they connect to that. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting uh, this is something to bring up because I mean Cam and I famously met at a Star Trek convention. Oh, that's that's where our friendship began many years ago. Love, I'm a Trekkie. <laughs> Welcome to the team. Um, <laughs> and you know, I've heard many people at conventions telling stories of people that come up to them at their tables and said similar things. There's that famous story of James Doohan, who played Scotty in the original series, of yeah. the person that was going to kill himself and he said don't do it come see me at the show and then kept coming back every time and eventually i think they got a, a doctor or something they like really turned their life around and the the importance that 
that Jimmy Doohan had on their life. And he he didn't understand it because he just he's an actor in his head and he just said was someone else has written. But it's it's the importance that you bring. And and clearly you've done that with your words and, and that's something to be proud of. Well, now it's taken on a whole different meaning to me. It's like, oh, I, I never wanted to go to an anime convention or be on any panels because I had a misconception that I was just going to be harangued by people who didn't like dubbing or someone was going to fixate, why did you write this word at this time code and blah, blah, blah. And I just, I had no idea what my work would mean to some other people. Then slowly but surely, I started to get pulled into it. And we just love going to the conventions. And now we have the same people who come and see the same thing over or come to our panels. And I just love it. And I love these people. I feel I feel almost maternal toward them. It's like I just want a big group hug there. And they're they're so intelligent. So many of these people they come up and they go, gee, I'm so in awe to meet you. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a, I'm a telemetry specialist at JPL. What? It's <laughs> like, dude, you're like, you're like crazy intelligent. I'm in awe of you. So it, um, it, it almost makes me want to cry sometimes how sweet and um, passionate they are about this. When you often find, too, when it comes to fandom, there's always going to be that element, you know, the, the toxic ones are the ones you're concerned about. But people that are like genuine fans of something are fascinated by every aspect of it. So even, you know, you're saying, you know, you're surprised because you are the one doing the dubbing script. But anyone who's a huge fan is fascinated. How does that work? You know, they want to know more about that because it's the entire property that they're so fascinated by. Yeah, I, I, I'm so enthralled by their passion. And uh, I'm happy to talk to them even after the panels. And so you want, I say, do you want to go get a drink or have some coffee? We'll talk, you know, eyes pop out. It's like, what? No, seriously, I'm, I'm here. If you want to talk, it's really fun. And they're just delightful people. And um, I, it's just something that means something so much to them that I'm happy to share what little aspect, what contribution I had. You want to hear about it? I'll tell you about it, <laughs> whatever you like. And a lot of them have become, you know, sort of friends. They, they message me and what are you working on now? Or what are you doing? Or let's see, I'm playing this game. I really like it. And we have uh, one fellow. I just love him to death. Met him years ago. He has MS. And he cannot move any part of his body other than his head. And he has special devices to help him communicate. And every week with clockwork, like clockwork, I get a little ping from him. Hi. Hey, how you doing, Barney? How you doing? And he'll say, I'm playing a game that you wrote a long time ago. I said, aren't you tired of that? No, never tired of it. Well, I'm glad that you're never tired of it. You know, that just, it makes me happy that I've had that kind of impact in the world. I never thought I would have. And back to what you said on a film, you didn't have much time on and were in between projects and didn't really think about until afterwards. It's, it's, it's crazy how this stuff works. Yeah. I had no idea until all of the information of uh, came out after the movie, after we saw the movie, it was the number one best-selling video in America. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Someone shows me the billboard rating. Really? James Cameron wrote a handwritten letter about how much he loved it. And, uh, well, that's pretty cool. And suddenly, 
we realized in hindsight, dude, we worked on some pretty big thing here. <laughs> so um, it keeps on giving, you know, we, we're proud of all the work and we've worked on some great stuff, but this one is, is just the most amazing. And because you did Ghost in the Shelf, did that lead to more work because of that one? Like, did other companies say, hey, they worked on Ghost in the Shelf, we want to work with them? Uh, we were busy for quite a while. And um, yeah, we um, we remastered Akira. I was supposed to write the new script for that. But then my boss, Kevin, we got into a bit of a scuffle over there. He goes, no, I think I'm going to write it. You said I could write it. Well, I want to write it now. <laughs> you said I could write it. <laughs> All right, fine. You could have it. So he wrote that one and it was remastered. And we got a lot of great, great stuff to do. We got to do um, a Cowboy Bebop movie. I got to write one of the bops and we got a lot of stuff. But then... All of a sudden, anime became bigger and bigger and more competitive. And out of nowhere, little anime dubbing studios popped up. And the work started to get spread out because one thing that will always remain true, if you do something at this price and you do it now lower, it's going to always go to the lowest bidder. And the quality gets compromised. And we refuse to compromise on a lot of quality. Well, can you do it for half this price and half the time? No, we can't. Bye-bye. So it became uh, an unviable thing. So my husband stopped doing the anime dubbing and eventually he retired. But I think that was sad that it became so disrespected. The actors' wages really didn't get compromised. A lot of them are union. But the fact that the technical aspects of it through the writing and the, the uh, sound and music editing and mixing has just been so disregarded as, oh, that's not important. I think that's a failure on the part of the, the I don't know, the licensee or the distributor mm -hmm. or the rights holder. Well, I, I think before we uh, sort of wrap up on Ghost of the Shell, I have a, a, the major question I have there for you, major, pardon the pun, <laughs> um, is... I don't, I don't know how often you watch the film now, but what does it mean to you now in 2022? What does Ghost in the Shell mean to you? I just look back on this. It's funny. I watch it with regularity to keep a lot of it fresh in my mind. I watched it sure. again this morning just so I'd be ready for it. Um, I look at this and I realize how incredibly great it is in that it's still as viable now, 27 years later, as it was then. Sure, the technology is a little bit different, but it's almost prescient because many of the things that were, you know, speculative fiction are coming into reality now. And I see this as a very important movie, like it is with many pieces of science fiction, where it's not a fantasy and it's not make-believe, we're looking possibly at our future. And the fact that this takes place in 2029 isn't that far removed from reality. We're already doing things remotely and look at what we're doing here on Zoom. That's That was not even a, a thought we could do 20 some odd years ago. So I see it as an incredibly beautiful artistic film that will always stand out as one of the iconic seminal films. It's gorgeous. The music is stunning. Kenji Kawai, 
his Buddhist-like chanting and the score is amazing. And the story is, it just sets the tone. So I, I realized I had a part in a very big classic. And um, it, it, to me, this is always going to be my milestone. That's, that was my, my height. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my follow-up question, and this might be a, a sore spot, and I'm sorry for prodding at it if it is. Oh, no. But, but what do you think of the recent Hollywood remake? Oh, believe me, CNN had me, um, <laughs> Elizabeth, and Richie Epcar on, and they asked us that same question. Everyone asks that. Well, here's my take. Um, Hollywood can make whatever they want. And if that's the movie they wanted, that's the movie they wanted. I did not understand why they would take uh, a live action version and copy it almost scene for scene, shot for shot in most of the major areas of the movie and then take it off in a completely different direction. There was no puppet master. There was no crux of a sentient life being. It went off in a completely different direction. So you started off copying it almost identically uh, to the, the, the animated feature, and then you went off in some other direction. And if it had just started off as a completely different science fiction film, it would have been fine. But I, I lost interest in it. It looked fine. And the casting didn't bother me, but it wasn't Ghost in the Shell. I do not, I, I couldn't relate to it. We are, we're following up our review with that. We haven't, I haven't watched the film yet. I haven't watched the remake. I've oh. seen your version many times. So I, I have no opinion, but I, I've heard many things and you've reinforced a, a few opinions <laughs> I, I've heard before. Yeah, that's, well, again, um, I don't know. It would have been fine if it had not been Ghost in the Shell, maybe something else. It, that, that's going around recently with lots of remakes. Yeah, I, I saw it in theaters. Um, and, you know, you just look at how it performed, the kind of lack of support for it. It kind of tells you that their approach didn't work because it just did not grab people. So, yeah. And some things just can't be made live action. Nope. You've got all the perfect elements in this world portrayed magnificently by the finest animators in the world and this stunning film, I, I think anything would pale by comparison. Mm -hmm. I, I would agree. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Our Thunderball commentary is live now, and put on your best Kevin Costner British accent because we are tackling 1991's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and it's going to be a bullseye. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Um, I think before we start to look at... Uh, uh, wrapping up i want to 
touch on a couple of bits of your sort of filmography. I think Cam has a couple of questions lined up on that section. But um, I wanted to go back to what you mentioned earlier with you starting off and sort of doing a little bit of VFX, working in VFX houses, things mm-hmm. like that. You mentioned Ghostbusters, <laughs> Gremlins 2. Yeah. Now, this is not stuff that's on your IMDb that I've come across. Uh, I think it's because it's under my maiden name. I I, uh, I wrote mm. under Mary Claypool, but I worked under Mary Mason. Uh, I've been working on trying to meld those two. I haven't gotten around to that. But um, yeah, I mean, my first film credit in the world was on Ghostbusters. I was a production assistant. I even have a live action panel. I talk, it's very pop culture. And I was hired as a production assistant at Boss Film. So I did everything. I did... Um, answering the phone, running errands, then slowly started to work my way up to being a visual effects production coordinator. So uh, I wasn't supposed to get a credit on that film, but I, I am the very last credit on that movie as Mary C. Mason Productions secretary. They couldn't, they did not give PAs credit. So I got boosted up to a production secretary. Ooh. But that was <laughs> great fun. I was there for the whole thing. And uh, I have the great privilege, the great honor of having completely cursed out Bill Murray on the phone, not knowing it was Bill Murray. That was great. You want to hear that one? You set it up now. (laughs) Well, I sat at the front desk for the most part answering phones. It was multi-lined. It was always busy. Everybody called in from the director, producers, whatever. And we had this very funny teamster captain, the guy who ran all of the vehicles between the studios and the and uh, the effects house. His name was Jim. Jim was a cut-up and quite a, uh, a mimicker. So he would leave, and one time he called in. They remember cell phones when they were like the size of like an old World War II walkie-talkie? Oh, of course. I get a call, and I could tell it's from a car. I go, let me talk to Richard Edlund. This is Ivan Reitman. Oh, yes, Mr. Reitman. Hold on. Ah, it's me, Jim. Ha ha. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Well, he would do that periodically, disguising his voice as somebody. So this one day, it was just busy, busy, busy. The phone rang. And I was like, boss, Phil, let me talk to Richard Edlund. This is Bill Murray. I just lost it. And I started speaking spewing profanities i'm not gonna say it here it's like jim this isn't funny you so-and-so you f f f f f bombs all over the place screaming and yelling i'm busy and this has got to stop long pause it was bill murray i had just cursed out bill murray and told him everything under the sun that it was just horrible and when i when i stopped for a moment and heard his voice this is bill murray I realized, I'm so sorry, Mr. Murray. I'm so sorry. Let me go get Mr. Edlund, <laughs> Richard Edlund, who the yeah, five-time Academy Award ring. I'll go get him for you. So I, I put him on hold and I ran to Richard's office that he, Richard was sitting in his safari gear with his unfiltered camel cigarette, reading a script for the next movie. And he's just relaxing, reading. And I burst in and I'm in tears. <laughs> Richard, and he's what? He goes, I just told Bill Mary to F off and die. And I'm so sorry. Please don't fire me. I thought it was Jim. I thought it was Blue. And I'm spewing like an idiot. And he's trying not to laugh. I can see he's trying not to, to laugh in my face. It's okay. Just, it's okay. Put, put him through. Shut the door. Okay. So I put the call through and I come and I shut the door. And then I hear, I put my ear to the door and I hear Richard talked a bit. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that, Bill. What? 
no, there's nothing wrong with her. <laughs> so that was a great moment. Um, but yeah, I got to see the, the whole marshmallow meltdown and the miniature city and all that. And then uh, after that, they promoted me to a visual effects production coordinator and we had Big Trouble in Little China come in and Fright Night um, and a slew of other projects that they did through there. So that was great fun. Got to work there for about four years and then I moved on to other things. Well, I am a huge, huge, huge Batman Returns fan. And oh, I have so many stories on that. Uh, please, anything that jumps out. Well, I was on that movie for a year and a half. Oh my I set up the uh, specialty costume shop because I had worked with Rick Baker and I set up that shop because I knew where to find mold makers and sculptors and all these people. And the crew from Britain came out and they were working in that building and they said, can you find us the people we need? I can find them for you. So I hired as one of the sculptors, Steve Wang, who is one of the premier sculptors in the world. He worked at Rick Baker's. I knew him ever since Ghostbusters, way back when. He and Matt Rose were uh, the people who designed The Predator. So he had a lot of cred. He came in and he basically sculpted uh, the basic look of the new Batman head for that film. And they said, oh, you know, we need this in like a week. He did it in a day. He's lightning fast and incredible. I brought in the foam runners and the mold makers and costumers and all these people I had worked with and we had this amazing team so that was fun but uh, I had another job I was also the puppeteer wrangler for the penguins because many of the penguins were actually uh, they were puppets hand puppets radio control and little people like many of the king penguins they had real king penguins they had real uh, small penguins and then they had 12 little people penguins of small actors who were in them so I had to coordinate that and I was running back and forth between the studio and the shop, wrangling puppeteers and then overseeing the shop. And uh, I remember when they first started doing the body molds, they brought in the first Catwoman who was Annette Benning. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that. And they did her body mold. And after we saw the mold, I saw how large her stomach was. I said, she's pregnant. And they said, no, 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 she's not. She's, she just has like a little water bloat. So no, dude, she's pregnant. That woman is pregnant. I'm telling you that woman's pregnant. Two days later, Annette Benning is pregnant and can't be Catwoman. Yeah, okay, I knew it. So uh, they had her come and go. Then they had Michelle Pfeiffer. She would come in. And um, Michael Keaton used to come there regularly to try on his outfits. And I remember... Um, I remember Danny DeVito coming in. He was, um, everybody came and went and they were delightful. And Tim Burton would come in talking to him about Frank and Weenie. That was great. Um, and I remember one time getting a call from Tim Burton's office saying, come and get your poster. We have a poster, beautiful poster of the Batman in a very stylized thing. So I went down there and they said, if you go down the studio, uh, I mean, the stage 25, uh, Danny Elfman is there, Michael's there, and Tim's there, get an autograph. So I did, went down there, they all autographed it, I come back, then I get another panic call from the office. Oh, that poster, do you have it? Uh, why? Oh my God, Bob Kane had a fit. Bob Kane, the creator of Batman, hated it, did not approve it, and was screaming, yelling, having a tantrum, <laughs> get them, destroy them. No problem. I will rip it to shreds. No, it's hanging up at home. Of course, I'm not going to destroy it. I think I have the only 
<laughs> so I have the only autographed one of that. But I have stories about the set, about penguins, about actors, all sorts of things. I mean, I could go on. I mean, that movie, kind of like Ghost in the Shell, it's so unique and you know that no one else could have made it and it had to happen at that specific point in time. Oh, it was crazy. Uh, and there were so many changes. You know, whenever there's script changes, they bring you a different color. So they were going through the whole rainbow almost every day with script changes. And I think Tim Burton was getting tired of it. At one time, Jamie Foxx was going to be Robin. And mm. that didn't fly. So that went away. But ultimately, they got it done. And um, yeah, yeah, it was quite the ride. <laughs> I feel like we could probably stay here for another hour and, and ask you questions about Batman and uh, and <laughs> Masters of the Universe. But uh, oh, that's right! I worked on that one a year and a half too. It seemed like I worked on that forever. Um, maybe we'll have to do the follow up interview down the road. You never know. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring us back on track to to your career afterwards. So, I mean, Cam and I have put our hands up in our review this week that we are not experts in this type of cinema. Seen bits and bobs. Uh, Cowboy Bebop was a show I watched a lot as a kid. Dragon Ball Z, things like that. I watched mm -hmm. a lot of that. But otherwise, in terms of these anime films, I've, you know, I've never really seen that many of them. So, like in terms of asking questions, I feel like I would, I'm wholly inequipped. So, I'll put the question to you instead. Of the films you've worked on, taking out Ghost in the Shell, which is which is you know one of the seminal ones you've you've worked on, what's another one you're particularly proud of that you could point people in the direction of to go check out after this? In the anime genre, or something? It can be outside if you're particularly proud of it, but either way. Well, uh, since I had so much more personal input in in the anime, I have. It's funny, as I say, I wasn't a really big anime person until I started to get into it. But once you invest yourself, then you start to really appreciate it. Um, there were so many amazing shows like Cowboy Bebop, you mentioned. I, uh, my friend Mark Handler was the writer of that series, but he had to step away at one point and he wanted me to write one of the episodes. So it came to my desk. I said, I know what's a Cowboy Bebop. Never heard of it. Don't know what it is. Then after I wrote this episode, it's like, oh, my God, I'm the biggest Cowboy Bebop fan on the planet. So you, you really have to get into that. That's another one that has wonderful characters and wonderful music. That's incredible. My ringtone on my phone is Tank. So uh, <laughs> love that. And another some of the odd shows that I've really enjoyed, like Code Geass is a very strange and wonderful series that I would highly recommend. And everyone who worked on that loved it. A lot of times the actors would come in, we might have a little meeting about it because we were at the time a team. And Kevin, who was uh, still alive, would talk to us about these characters and everyone got into the characters because some of them were so over the top, it gave them an uh, a chance to really act and show their chops. And I got to write my butt off. It was, that's a wonderful show. Really enjoyed that. There's a lot like that, that I'm very proud of. And uh, again, Gremlins 2, because I actually got to write a couple of those scenes. It's not the greatest film in the mood in the world, but it's, it's a cult classic. I'm very happy about that. I, I actually stand behind Gremlins too. It's quite the commentary on remakes and things like that and sequels. It's got a lot of that sort of commentary going. I quite like. It has a lot of humor and I love Joe Dante. He's awesome. 
I love Joe Dante. And I remember, you know, when Gremlins 2 came out, it was, you know, people kind of turned up their noses at it a little bit. But in the years that have followed, there's a lot of debate back and forth, actually, which is the superior Gremlins? Because, I mean, Gremlins 2 has really risen in terms of reappraisals. I think Gremlins 1, the first one was darker, much darker. And this mm -hmm. one was just fun. It was so silly. And I think that was the whole point. And I got to meet Christopher Lee on that. So that was oh. really Awesome, awesome, awesome. It had such a great cast. And again, everyone really enjoyed it. And the spectacular array of gremlins that Rick Baker's crew came up with really was fun for them. They got to come up with ideas and fly with these odd characters. And they were wonderful. They, um, it was just great all the way across the board. Gremlins 2 was the one that we had a copy of in my household yeah. growing up. Uh, I think I, I just remember laughing uh hysterically whenever i saw bob picardo running away <laughs> from the female gremlin that, that that still makes me laugh to this day with like the kiss and everything it, it's just fun stuff <laughs> well mary how we like to wrap these chats up is we need to test your spy credentials because we do talk about spy movies every week it's not too harsh don't worry it's more about you oh, okay so <laughs> My first question is, what's your favorite spy movie? Oh, it's got to be a 007. I love the No, I'm going to I'm going to take this back. Okay, I love mm. 007 movies. I love James Bond. But um oh my gosh, I'm trying to remember um Day of the Condor. Is that it? 3 Days of the Condor. 3 Days of the Condor with um Robert Redford. Mhm. Mm Love film. that! I love that film. The fact that he reads and he knows so much just from being a reader. I love that. One of my favorites. It's that line where they're all confused about how he has all these powers. Like he reads. He, he reads. reads. He, <laughs> he reads. reads. <laughs> yes, Excellent choice. We usually just hear Casino Royale most of the time, so I, it's nice to hear something like Three Days of the Condor. We're both big fans of that film. But you mentioned Bond. So what's your favorite Bond film? It is Casino Royale. I do love that because I think Daniel Craig, in my opinion, is the best 007 ever. And he mm. really brought that role home. I liked him because he's not super, he is smooth, but he's not, he's another flawed guy who's carrying a lot of baggage and he's in pain a lot and he works through his anger. And I love, I love the, the newer Bond films. I think he's great. And the whole... Um, the whole setup of the Vesper is awesome. Now, I would usually follow up with who is your Bond, but I think you answered that with Daniel Craig. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. He's great. Okay. Um, last then, because we're talking about anime film, what's your favorite anime film? Well, of course, it's Ghost in the Shell. Actually, <laughs> well, it, it can't really get around that one. Um I honestly think the very first one I wrote, nobody has ever heard of. It's called Giant Robo. It's a series. It's not Giant Robot. It's not Johnny Sacco, but it's in that vein of a little boy who's commanding, commandeering a giant robot. It's such a cast of over-the-top crazy characters that I just absolutely fell in love with it. Maybe it's like, you know, having sex for the first time. It was my first ADR. I really bonded with that. And it was wonderfully, wonderfully animated and acted. So if you ever get a chance, check out Giant Robo. 
Great. Well, there you go. Um, the last question I'll ask is, what are you working on at the moment? Can you can you spill any beans? Right now, I am not working on anything at the moment. I actually have a day job that anime writing, you know, has always been freelance. During mm-hmm. all these years that I've been a writer, I have also had a secondary job. I manage a rental stage for film and video shoots. When my husband owned his studio, he was a, uh, a renter in a complex where the owner wanted to transform this warehouse into shooting stages. And I knew the production people who could help do that. So I brought them in, turned it into a shooting stage. We have a spaceship set, we have a green screen. So I managed the rentals for that. And um, that's been a mainstay job all the years. And then my boss gave me the luxury, yeah, if you need time off for writing, go write or whatever. So I was writing, I had like three jobs. I was doing that, doing that and raising a child. My child was raised in my office. That was my nursery. So when I was writing and not booking the stage, I was taking care of my baby. Talk about a woman who could do it all. Women can do it all. (laughs) But (laughs) that was it. Well, I actually, I missed a question. You said you were a Trekkie, and that's oh, where yeah. me and Cam start. So, what's your Star Trek show? My favorite Star Trek show mm. of all time? Oh, there's so many, and they're pretty well tied. And they harken back. There's the original show that I really, really like. Who doesn't like Trouble with Tribbles, right? Mm-hmm. But I, um, Who Weeps for Adonais is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Right. And because Mike Forrest who played is a good friend of mine. And I just love that episode that he fades away. And um, of one of the more modern ones of the series, it's um, Captain Picard. I don't know the name of the episode, but he, he sort of passes out for a moment and he leads a whole life from a galaxy or a planet, the civilization that has been destroyed and they've imbued him with their memory. I love that episode. It's marvelous. Yeah, that's the uh, inner light. Yeah, from TNG. Oh, yeah, I love yeah. that. I mean, there's so many and I have my favorite movies and my favorite. Uh, I think, I, I think we've, we've queued up your next visit on the show. We're just going to talk about Star Trek and Masters okay. of the Universe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fun fact, I got to close out the Roddenberry estate because my friend's wife uh, was the general manager. And when Majel passed away, mm-hmm. they needed everything inventoried, photographed, packed up to go to its various places. I got to do that. That was oh. awesome. I was, cause he said, I need you to come and help my wife. I said, why? Every time we hire someone young and who's a nerd, they just sit there and look at all the stuff and they don't do anything. So I know you can do it. So would you do this as a favor to me? So I, yeah, that sounds like fun. I got to meet Gene Jr., Rod. And I get to, I'm holding things that I'm looking at and I was geeking out. I pick up a photograph. It's like, that's a cool photograph. And I realized it's signed by Neil Armstrong, an actual original photograph of Earth from Moon. And I'm holding it. Thank you, Gene, for making that one step for mankind a reality. <sighs> Wow. And I'm, 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 I had to close out Gene Roddenberry's personal office and categorize. And I find a letter. There's this woman who you might be interested in. Her name is Nichelle Nichols. Can I send her by? Oh, I'm holding the original. I'm, I'm touching everything. And I, you know, I just, I'm part of it. I'm soaking in the, the trekkiness of it all. 
I think I would be that geek who couldn't do the job properly and would just be <laughs> reading everything. I, I don't think I would be successful at that job. Oh, yeah. It was great. And, and Rod was generous and let me have a lot of little things that he didn't want to deal with. And I thought, okay, <laughs> just fill my car up with anything you don't yeah. want. I'm taking it home. You put the Enterprise set in your car one, one chair at a time. <laughs> well, I, I did get a lot of the books from his dad's library, realizing that they were all personalized inside the books, really. And I found this really weird, you know, car aerials. They used to be extended aerials. There was mm-hmm. a roach clip on the end. I found out this was the, the Roddenberry roach clip that his dad used to pass around at at writing story meetings and they would all get high and talk about stories (laughs) 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 beautiful i couldn't think of a better note to end this chat on i i i want to thank you mary for taking the time to speak to us to share your wisdom on a film that we are both big fans of it made the knock list on the show we love Ghost in the Shell and we love you. So thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been delightful. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Um, if people want to hear more from you, do you have like a, a website or a social media we could we could plug at all? You'd think, but I don't. <laughs> I mean, like I said, my husband and I go to conventions, but we've been asked many times to start a website. So I'll put that on my top of my to-do list. Well, if, if you do get it done, let us know. We'll put it out there. But Mary, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you go, folks. Firstly, we want to thank Mary once again for joining us. She was nothing but generous with her time, and I feel like I learned a lot. It was like talking to Dan Mindell again. I was going back to film school. Yeah, and I really appreciated that because I am pretty much a novice with anime as we talked about in the review episode for ghost in the shell and her ability to actually explain the entire process i found genuinely fascinating and incredibly informative for someone like me who knows not a whole lot about this process i mean i went into the interview with an assumption that she spoke japanese Mm, me too yeah i it just seemed like a natural one plus one equals two she does the translation but no, there's a translation team, and then she has to turn that translation, which is quite rough in a lot of cases, into a, a a living, breathing script that actually makes sense in the English language. And I I don't think I had quite an appreciation about it before I did this interview, but I certainly do now. Yeah, and I talked about in the interview this sort of balancing between the technical and the creative, and that's very much what this job is. It's incredibly complicated to achieve all of this. She talked about some of the stories, some of the horror shows really, of trying to translate some of this from dingy VHS tapes and match the mouths and stuff like that. There's all these technicalities of the job that are very complex, but at the same time, you're trying to give each of these characters a unique voice. You're trying to capture the flow of the story, convey the plot details. There's a lot of creativity mixed with the, (laughs) a lot of the headaches that would go through this, you know, be involved in this process. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of the film, a ghost in the shell i mean she had only done a couple of um localizations mm-hmm. at this point uh, and then she was given this feature film with zero notice sent to japan and given basically two weeks to do something that would usually take six with an unfinished film that's a big task and this film was as we spoke about earlier in the week pitched as the one that they could sell to american audiences like it was going to be the the crossover hit it wasn't quite that in cinemas, but it was that when it hit home video. And so that was a lot of pressure to put on someone poten- potentially unproven. But she definitely rose to the occasion. 
And also, I mean, her English dub of Ghost in the Shell is the way that my suspicion is the majority of English-speaking film viewers saw this movie. And there's a lot of people that love, love, love Ghost in the Shell. And a lot of that love would have come from the storytelling that she was conveying through her dub. And it just goes to show that, you know, Danny from the Anime Summit podcast, who joined us earlier this week, you know, they when they talk about their films and TV shows, they, they say, should you watch the dub or the sub? And they vote for this film, the dub. Well, mm-hmm. Mary made the dub. So, you know, it's a big old decision. I've seen both versions myself. I, I prefer the dub. But um, I, I, it was just a, a, a quite interesting chat in that sense. Like, I, I didn't know all of the extra steps that went into it. Like, I didn't even think in my head that she had to match the mouth movements of some of the characters because I've seen a lot of dubbing in my life and they don't always match what the mouths are doing. I didn't realize there was an effort to do so, but extensive work went into doing that. And, you know, she had to do rewrites and things like that. Why? And, and yet this film changed cinema. Yeah. It's crazy. Like that two weeks of her life. And then she didn't think about it for a while. I didn't really know until like it was the big smash hit on home video. Like that's, and, and there's no wonder she speaks about it now at conventions and things like that. She's very popular with anime fans. I mean, she's done a lot of work since. You look her up on IMDb, she's doing lots of localization work for countless, not just anime, but lots of other stuff. So, yeah, I was just blown away, Cam. Yeah. I just thought this was a fascinating interview about an aspect of the film industry that I was completely unfamiliar with. And, you know, when we talk to, say, Dan Mandel about cinematography, who you referenced, I understand what cinematography is. I don't have the technical know-how of all the aspects of, you know, shooting a movie, but I understand what he's talking about. Whereas this was something I really didn't know anything about, and I was just genuinely fascinated to hear her stories about the experience as well as just breaking down the process of achieving it. Yeah, like the, the going to Japan, talking for a translator to the director of the film, trying to get a feel for what he wanted from the story. All these steps I didn't know were, were part of the process. And one bit I found quite fascinating was just talking about her favorite moments that she well, she scripted. And I, I, in my head, I thought a lot of this process was really just translating. Uh, but it really is like you're retelling the story through a sort of medium that we can understand in an English-speaking culture. Yeah. Because, as as she pointed out, Japanese is quite a poetic language, but it doesn't necessarily flow in direct translation. So you have to kind of change not just, like, sentences, but a whole paragraph of, of words to try and make it all make sense together. And that's a lot of work. Uh and yeah, you know, she picked her favorite scene was right at the end, where the major is interfacing with uh, the puppet master to become a new being, and that was one of my two favorite scenes too. I also really love the scene where they're on the boat, talking about you know the major has been just underwater and the you know the notion of like finding hope, and then also discussing with her partner about her you know, cyborg form and what that means and all, you know, everything to do with just the themes of the movie. A lot of the dialogue is very poetic in the dub. And often that's not the case in dubbed films. Right. And Mary said, you know, that scene was perhaps the the most troublesome one she dealt with because there was so 
the text the text was so rich uh you know steeped in metaphor that she had to then sort of rebuild that narrative but also make it fit like the time codes of everyone's talking and make it the mouth movements match up all these intricacies that i didn't know were part of this role um so yeah it just felt like going back to film school definitely but then you know it turns out she's got this whole other side career of working in some of our favorite 80s films and 90s yeah i mean batman returns is one of my all-time favorite superhero movies if not movies i watch it at least once a year and it's just a constant source of inspiration for me just in terms of its boundless creativity and to hear just stories about working you know briefly with Annette Benning on you know the Catwoman costume and the penguin wrangling like that movie is such a wonder it's a miracle it even exists and so any stories I can get about the creation of it are just riveting to me it did also explain why you sort of for some reason ran out of the interview got changed into a leather catsuit then came back well, it was actually just on underneath my clothes, but yeah. Yeah, that, that does make sense. And to be fair, you do know how to use a whip because of this film. Also true. Also true. I was inspired by Michelle Pfeiffer to learn how to do that. Correct. But as you said, you already had the outfits. The outfits just, yeah, that was obvious. Yeah. yeah. And also, you know, she uncredited, and this isn't uh, on her IMDb, but um, uncredited rewrites on Gremlins 2. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just some problem solving because she happened to be in the room and she was a you know, trained writer herself. Constructing two scenes in a film. She's not meant to be writing it, but she just happened to be in the right place at the right time to put it together. Um, fascinating. Fascinating. And what a, as she pointed out, this isn't her main job. She mm-hmm. runs a studio on the as her main job. But on the side, she freelances as, as a writer for localization and has influenced some of cinema's biggest films, let alone Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, it's sort of a uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon thing going on with Mary Claypool, where you can connect her to all of these classic works, whether it's you know working with Ivan Reitman on something like Ghostbusters, the Tim Burton stuff. She talked about you know Gene Roddenberry and helping with the estate there. There's all these various legends of Hollywood, obviously Ghost in the Shell, hugely influential one of the most important anime films of all time and somehow she's all connected to it all it's just fascinating this was a story i really didn't know what we were going to get when we went to the interview we knew about ghost in the shell we knew about you know what her duties were on that but in terms of like the larger picture of her career that was just a huge surprise to me and just consistently fun and interesting to hear about yeah and i'm i i'm glad we 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 got it together and we made this one work. You know, this was a this film this week has been a bit of a different film to our usual beaten path. This is not you know a Bond or anything like that, but we wanted to try something different. We hope you've enjoyed our chat about Ghost in the Shell. We hope you've enjoyed the interview as well. Do let us know what you think if you'd like to hear more of these because there are other spy movies. There's a couple of spy animes out there that we could look into, but also just more animation. There are a lot of animated spy movies that we haven't tackled yet. This is our first animation. And you know, we're on like episode 90 or at this point. Yeah, and we have the obvious ones on our list. You know, your Cars 2, Spies in Disguise, things like that. But if there are some more obscure ones out there you guys are interested in hearing about, let us know. 
yeah, we're happy to go obscure if you're happy to come along with us. That's not a problem. But uh, it, we just genuinely want to know if there's something you're interested in hearing more from. But we've had a lot of fun talking about Ghost in the Shell. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, but that brings me on to the question, Cam. What are we doing next week? Yes, we are tackling the 1934 espionage thriller based on a true story, British Agent. So it's my autobiography. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you lived in the past, is this like a reincarnation revelation you're about to drop on us? Uh, no, I much like you, I actually am very old. This has been like a long-running joke on the show that you were very old, but I actually am also very old. <laughs> this movie was directed by Michael Curtiz, who directed Casablanca, The Adventures of Robin Hood. This is one of his earlier works, um, starring Leslie Howard. It is available on YouTube. Just search British Agent 1934. You can find it there. It's also on your basic streaming services. Sometimes it's a little touch and go with some of these older movies. This one is very easy to track down. Uh, just skip over all the YouTube videos of me pretending to be James Bond. Mm, yes, please. Uh, or, or watch them, but make sure to give them a thumbs up. <laughs> so there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch British Agent and join us next week. If you've enjoyed the show this week, do consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps uh, with our reach and helps new people find the show and enjoy the Spy Jinx even more. And, of course, do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, but Cam, until next week, it's simple. Over-specialize and you breed in weakness. It's slow death. Hello, my name is Chris Carr. I'm a filmmaker and podcaster. Join me as I take a look at the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and organized crime on my podcast, Secrets and Spies. Available on all podcast apps. This is Manna from Spy Heaven.